Welcome to Standpoint, a podcast from India discussing global issues of the moment. I'm Shruti Kapella. I'm Orbo Sengupta and today's Standpoint episode is on primary education. Primary education in India is in poor shape. The annual statistics for education report 2018 shows that children in class 5, who are about 10 years old, can read texts for children in class 2. And the number of children who can do that is has fallen from 53.1% in 2008 to 44.2% in 2018. But there's a critical silver lining. The silver lining is that this number has increased over the course of the last six years. So something seems to be changing, though in absolute terms, we could still be doing much better. Today we have with us Rukmini Banerjee, who is the CEO of Pratham, which is India's leading NGO on primary education and the authors of the Asar Report. Thanks very much, Rukmini, for joining us today. Uh, welcome to the sh- uh, show. Uh, we w- maybe we could ask um, you by sort of setting India's primary education policy in a longer historical context. One of the interesting things about India is that when Nehru helmed India's freedom, Uh, He, unlike several other leaders of post-colonial nations and newly independent nations, decided to invest in higher education. I mean, it was a kind of almost a toss-up. I mean, he didn't in a way invest as much as he could have in in primary education. And this is something that, you know, figures like Amartya Sen have, as it were, criticized of the Nehru, uh, criticized that about the Nehru age. So, where do you see, you know, the story of primary education? Is this the first fault, as it were, the original problem that the the few, the first initial years did not invest in it? But having said that, there's also the flip side that India's higher education has paid off rich dividends for, for India in terms of, you know, the computer technology takeoff and, new, you know, all the new economy stuff that we, we talk about. So I just thought maybe you could... Uh, you know, assess where primary education policy originated, its fault lines, especially in relation to higher education. So I have to start with a kind of a social comment on myself and on people like me. So I was in, went to school in the 60s and 70s. And uh, we, in those days, had to choose science or arts at the age of, I think, uh, I don't know, 14 and I remember, and I remember being a little bit puzzled even at that age, that every year from 6th, we started in Mohenjo-daro and plodded our way and reached up to the Guptas. And by that time, the year was over, and you went back and started again in Mohenjo-daro <laughs> and moved up. The, this is my excuse for saying I know very little of in modern Indian history. And I uh, remember even when I was doing my PhD, my advisors would say, I think you should stop your current analysis and go back and have a look. So, long-winded answer to say that uh, this is a question I should have thought about long before I arrived here. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I think what I can just do is, you know, give you my kind of uh, sense of what it must have been like. Mm-hmm. I think there are a couple of things, and again, historians and others who've thought about it can perhaps, in you know, in retrospect, you know, you can see a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. But decision-making at that time must have been informed by a whole variety of things. I think that in our independence movement, uh, was crowded with a lot of very educated people. That's correct. And I think their education was a huge uh, asset uh, as far as their, um, uh, you know, multifaceted, uh, you know, 
uh, I would say, multifaceted way of moving forward on bringing India its independence and, you know, many things that happened mm -hmm. afterwards. And surely that must have also stacked the odds a little bit in favor of that we need to build our higher education institutions mm -hmm. to lead us ahead. Mm -hmm. So that's usually my first gut reaction. Mm -hmm. But then I've also recently been thinking about, I think, within India, you know, I know Argo is a Bengali, so naturally he's not called Argo at by some people in his life. He must be called something else. <laughs> or most people. Yeah. yeah. So you have a nickname and you have a you have a bhalonam and yes, you have a nickname. Sure. And so we are, you know, inherently split personalities. So is it the case that in our own psyche, Indian psyche, we have a kind of a real uh, conflict between issues of equity and issues of excellence. Yes. And I think you see that playing out in our education system in many different ways. That while at one level you feel equity is really, uh, you know, what the country needs, you feel that if we don't excel in some sectors, we will somehow be held back. And perhaps the investment in the IITs and the IIMs and in universities may have been that let's just get that in place and then we'll come back. Right. The prevailing, uh, you know, uh, climate at the time, it, you know, of course, you can read historical mm -hmm. stuff. But I somehow I feel it's a combination of both of these that perhaps made us ignore primary education a little bit more than we should have. And we have, you know, since I would say maybe the since the 80s, at least, yes. you know, been on a little bit of an accelerator to catch up. That's very interesting what you say about equity versus excellence. And of course, immediately one mind, one mind turns to the question of caste, right? And of course, the Indian constitution, uh, you know, by introducing re reservations, sought to, as it were, create some kind of equity on the question of education. Uh, how do you think that has worked out for primary education? Because, of course, we hear about caste much more in terms of higher education, in terms of jobs. But we very rarely hear the caste question in terms of primary education. I mean, do you think, how has that, in your own experience, you've now been working in this almost 30 years, how has that panned out, the caste question? Yeah, so I think that, again, I think that in primary education, I think the assumption, not just in India, but mm. worldwide, was that if you provided the schools and the things that go with schools, a lot of the issues of education and in inverted commas would be solved. Mm. Uh, and that then you would have to worry about, you know, evening the playing field later on. Because just by having enough schools and enough teachers and, you know, in the right place, you'd be able to get a whole bulk of people up to a certain point. I think that was an assumption that has been in place until very recently. I mean, if you look at the economics literature world mm. over, you use years of education as a proxy, years of schooling as a proxy for education. Mm -hmm. And it's only recently in the last, I would say, 10 years mm -hmm. that we've been able to kind of disentangle what is schooling and what is learning. So the statistics that uh, Orgo was citing from the annual status of education report is really India's first attempt to disentangle. You see that you've been in school for five years and it has been assumed that five years of school must be in some way equivalent to five years of some value added. And yet, when we, uh, you know, started uh, working in this area 15 years ago, we could say that you could be in school for five years, but only half of those people may have accumulated at least two years 
of learning. That's right. So this is, a, but I think it's not a, it's a recent realization. So I think just just to follow up on that equity versus excellence framing, because implicit in that is that equity is a question of primary education and excellence can only be equated with higher education and hence the IITs and the IIMs. What does excellence in primary education look like? I think that's a very basic question that seems to have been ignored. In your experience, what would an excellent primary education be? So let's look at what is expected. Yeah. Okay, What is expected is we, like every other school system, especially the school systems that have been put in place in the last 40, 50 years, or maybe even earlier, have a kind of a age grade construction to our school system. You know, you're a certain age, you enter school, after one year, you ought to be in a certain certain level. And for a common man, the way you see that is the textbooks. Mm -hmm. So your first standard textbooks take you up to a certain point. The second standard picks up at that point or maybe a little bit behind and takes you forward. And so the assumption is that I will move along this kind of linear ladder, which roughly corresponds to my age, which roughly corresponds to a grade. Now, this works for those who are... Ha, those who have parents who have been educated, uh, who, who typically tend to be in certain kinds of schools in India and have certain kinds of backgrounds, caste, class and the works. Because there we find that as a child is moving through this age grade system, there are others like parents and other family members who are looking out to make sure that you remain on that track. You know, so if you don't, then you get help of various kinds. But we have a huge new generation of people who are coming into schools who don't have that kind of a mindset or a family background who can look out for you and know what is expected. The first time learner, the first generation yes, the, learner. You know, there, yes. are, there are many, 50% of our uh, children who are in primary school today have parents who have had very little years of schooling or years of learning. So while I think as a country and as a society, we have learned what it means to be in school, I think we are just about beginning to learn what it means to be in school and learning. I mean, it's very, very interesting because critics of, as it were, literacy, especially government literacy programs, have pointed out that it's incredibly shoddy. And, you know, it doesn't actually, and actually de-skills people from traditional forms of knowledge that they may have inherited in a way, whether it's through oral tradition, whether it's in the field of agriculture, whether it's in other kinds of skills. So in a way that these kinds of literacy programs have also de-skilled, um, you know, Indians. I mean, what do you think? You know, because I, I take your point of this kind of li linear learning, this kind of rote learning, this kind of very straight jacket idea of age versus grade. and But then there's the other question that once you're pulling people out of so-called illiteracy, there are costs attached to that as well. I think stepping just a little bit back, going back to mm. our equity and a little mm. bit of our past history, I would say the first big obvious movement mm. with an equity angle perhaps were the adult literacy movements of the late, uh, of the 80s, yes. late 90s. And there I think there was an understanding that for development you do need adults to have some form of broadly what we would call literacy. I mean, our census still calculates exactly that literacy, right. which is really not any ability to do more than maybe just write your name or so on. And one of the across the board, if you look at what India probably agrees, uh, you know, that we achieved in that adult literacy movements was maybe and maybe not adult literacy, especially female literacy, but a huge demand for primary education. 
And so the unlocking of, you know, this whole idea that you need to have functional literacy for adults, uh, as I said, may or may not have made the adults functionally literate, but it certainly fueled what happened from the 90s onwards in terms of a, a real push. And I would say that the value, the the widespread value and realization of schooling perhaps began to happen then. And to me, it's very interesting that there are certain things where parents and communities are moving in sync with government policy and provision. And I think this is the time when we pick up steam, whether it's Sarva Shiksha Abhyan or there were programs that went before it called the District Primary Education Program, which now really put a thrust that there must be a school everywhere. There must be at least a minimum number of teachers everywhere. And if you think about just the the uh, the the task on scale, it's been humongous. And you know there are some things that are well known. You know it's very well known that you know enrollment rates in India are now very high. Of the primary school or the elementary school going age, almost 95% kids have been enrolled in school for the last almost 10 years. What is less known is that if you looked at uh, maybe even 10 years ago, 2008 or nine. What was our enrollment in standard eight? Okay, if you look at the Indian census, broadly, roughly, we have about 25 million people in each age group, in each right. single year age group, right? So in 2008, we had about 11 or 12 million enrolled in standard eight out of a potential, let's say, broadly 25 million. That number today is 23 or 24 million. So not only are we, you know, our children at least attached to school in terms of enrollment, but they're lasting eight years at least. And that, to me, is not a mean feat. Yes, but what accounts for that shift? So I think that what accounts for that shift, I think, is many things. One is this, this uh, I would say, almost, you know, uh, blind faith that years of schooling, and I'm not calling it education yes. on purpose, mm -hmm. a blind faith that years of schooling is going to lead to some much better life later. Yes. And that much better life, maybe jobs, maybe, I don't know, better, you know, business. It's a nebulous, better future. Mm -hmm. But without these years of schooling, without these years of jumping over the, you know, the goalposts at 10th and 12th, you're yeah. not going to reach there. That's right. So there is a kind of a breathless urge to accumulate years of schooling. Mm -hmm. And you see that I, I was I have just in fact just right now come from UP. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, uh, you know, UP or my own home state of Bihar are very good examples of uh, communities and families trying to make up lost time. Mm. You know, you may have lost out on certain several generations. Yes. And therefore, in, when you go to first standard in UP, I was just there today, you see some very little children. Mm. Our constitution or whatever, right to education, uh, law or yes. amendment or whatever it is, says 6 to 14. Yes. So the assumption is that you come to class one at six. All of India is sending their children to class one way younger. Yeah, that's mm. correct. And so not, did I. Go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and particularly the middle class is sending children at, you know, maybe two to play Three. school and this and that. Yes. Because of this, you know, breathless desire <laughs> to have as many years of, you know, more is better, earlier is better. And let's just get it because somehow, you know, we have to move ahead fast. And I think that this years of schooling accumulation is a, you know, is a national obsession. Obsession. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the more I can distinguish myself or my children, so, you know, you can do this in government schools, but, you know, maybe I'll be ahead if I go to private school. And in addition to the years of schooling, I'll have a tie and a belt and a twinkle, twinkle little star mm -hmm. that takes me somehow a little bit further. Because I think we are very aware 
not just in a Delhi or a Bombay, but everywhere that I have 25 million children I'm competing mm. with. Yes. And because my parents came, my parents, meaning children's parents, came from, you'd never had even access to these resources. Mm. Now that everybody has access to resources, the competition is even I think earlier it was scarce resources. Today it's competition. Okay. And I think you you capture a, an interesting national obsession uh, with uh, with schooling, uh, but uh, but at the at the same time, uh, you know, there is there is this other problem uh, with it, which is uh, that you know you have as it were a burgeoning of private sector and don't know, quite a lot of all kinds of provisions of of education, which is highly unregulated and and. So how do you sort of sort of navigate this this path? Because India has produced, in a way, a new hierarchy in education as well, whether government schools, missionary schools, private schools, and then you know now you have, as it were, uh, you know international schools and their branches in in India. So uh, in a way, uh, you know, you you capture that uh, that that mood, but at the same time, you have this kind of new hierarchies that are emerging in, in it. Uh, you know, so I I look at it. Yes, on the face of it, there are hierarchies, but I think if you just look a little behind, I think there is a real big and potentially very interesting gray area. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at our organize, if I, if you look at our you know manufacturing sector. Some of it is organized into sort of where what we look at as companies and, you know, clear, uh, you know, corporate hierarchies. Entities, yeah. And then just literally behind that is a vast pool of unorganized. And depending on when we are talking, we call that entrepreneurial energy or we call it unorganized sector. You know, it depends what, what, what mood you're in. And I think the education field is exactly like that. And it's... and. Somehow this private school and government school is a binary that we've inherited from countries which are much more regulated and where this, you know, say, let's say in the US, you have a Catholic school and you yes. have a public school and you have some kind of a voucher or whatever. Mm -hmm. These are very, because it's a very highly regulated context. Yes. Here, and I'll give you a little example just to illustrate this. I was in a village in West Bengal uh, and um, yeah, I mean, we were running some kind of a summer program and we had a lot of volunteers. And there were 18 volunteers who were helping to do something with all the village children for a month in one summer. So I asked these people, what do you do? And there was a whole range. There were some were housewives, some were young people, some were retired teachers. And they described their village. It was a village, the school, primary school had about 300 children and it had four teachers. And uh, so that sounds like it's, you know, terrible. Right? And West Bengal doesn't have mm. too many private schools, especially in rural areas. So then I said, what about what happens after school? So, of course, everybody goes for tuition or coaching. That's right. Whatever, exactly right? right. And so who does the tuition or coaching? Well, everybody does it. The government school teachers do it. Yes. The You know, some people do it part time. Some people do it full time. How many? So we went down the list. It was actually a very interesting it's exercise. It's big business. I mean, if you go down any, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's big and it's small, small business. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but it's a big. Yeah. It is business. It's you it's, know. it's a it's a neighborhood activity at mm. one level, and at some level, it's a you know very lucrative business. Yes. It's it's a whole it's a whole range of these things in between. Mm. In that village, we went down the list and we actually counted by name who does tuition. Mm -hmm. There were thirty five people who did tuition in that village. Yes. So the teacher student ratio in the government school was you know 300 is to 75 four. yeah and in the actual where teaching learning probably happens it was one is to 10, ten. Mm. but in that as well there were some who i mean how do you now i'm a parent in that village how do you decide where my child should go and there were some 
rules of thumb by which, you know, if my son looked like he was quite bright, I sent him to such and such sir. Hmm. Because such and such sir had a very good track record of taking kids all the way to 12th. Right. But my daughter, you know, she's very keen also, but I'm not sure. So I sent her to such and such didi, yeah. where it only cost 15 rupees a month. Okay. I so I think that we have a big gray sector, which really is, I think the teaching and learning happens both in what we think of as school. And what we what is just behind the school as well. Right. I mean, that's okay. right. That's exactly There is a right. big space between home and school and community. And I think it's quite crowded with many options. Mm -hmm. There is very little research that actually helps us understand. The, it's the combined force of all of this that is taking our children forward. Mm -hmm. In private, in middle class homes, the home is very clear. You know, you come inside, you ring the bell, you go in. Mm -hmm. So you can say this is a home. But when you live in the slums and it's a lot of it is outside, how much of this is... You know, in uh, in sort of sociological literature, you say home background. Mm. But that has a certain definition of what is a home. Mm. <laughs> Clearly, this is a lot of background that is fueling aspirations, opportunities, pathways within the same family. Decisions are being made. So, yes, there are private schools and government schools. But I would say in addition, there are vast options. And the, by vast options, maybe that's not the right word. There are many options even at low income levels, about how you might want to strategize and maximize both your ambitions, your child's capabilities, and probably constraints that's right. that so, are out there. So I think that's quite interesting, actually, because it 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 sort of brings me to a brings me to some questions of detail, which I didn't know about since I don't belong to this sector. Uh, and what I'm taking away from what you're saying is that people are in school for a variety of reasons and partly this nebulous uh, scope for betterment. Uh, but also the, now that there is going to be an increasing realization of what are we doing at school as in what is this learning. And I was amazed to see some of the reports that, that you've written uh, along with your team, which says that uh, children in school, whether in class five, uh, don't know how to do basic arithmetic or reading that one would expect someone in class two to do. And and similarly, as in it's littered with some anecdotes of this nature and more serious data to back up the fact that while children may be in school, what they're doing at school is an entirely different story that perhaps we should focus on. So I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit from your practical field experience. I, I, I read a paper that you'd written about Jehanabad that you'd visited. So either about Jehanabad or somewhere else. Uh, about what's actually going on in these schools now that we've got most children in school? So I would say that we are at a very interesting cusp. Uh, I think over the last, in India at least, over the last 10, 12 years, this uh, needing to deal with schooling and learning and that this is an issue and something that we need to face is I think now being finally faced. For the first couple of years of the Asad report, everybody was in denial mm -hmm. And it, there was, it was just sort of shock and awe. But I think over time, you know, the, the thing has settled that there is really an issue that if children are in school uh, and not learning, then we need to do something about it. The solutions still vary considerably. But I would say that I, the, the reason I was in UP is because the UP government in partnership uh, with, uh, with Pratham is trying out a major experiment. And to some level, I think what is being seen in Delhi, in the Delhi schools, is a version of the same experiment. And it, again, is the fact that, you know, you can't really move ahead. Assuming that this excellence and specialization happens a little bit later, you can't move ahead unless you have certain foundational skills in place. And the foundational skills could be defined in many different ways, but let's say at the basic minimum, 
reading and under, with some understanding, being able to express your views, some math, number sense and operations is the very base. And we see state after state in their own way trying to f grapple with this. And I think that we have reached a place and people have reached it at different ways to say that business as usual is not going to work. Just more doing more of the same is not going to get us. So we need to experiment with different things. UP has a hundred and some 20, 30,000 primary schools in the government sector. And UP's children are 50% are in the private sector. And so in some sense, the private sector is more conservative. So this push will come there perhaps later. Yes. Here, what they are doing is to say that can we take two hours a day, take a deep breath, take two hours a day and say that doesn't matter if you're in fifth and you can't read, we can help you. If we take some time out from our regular age grade linear curriculum mm -hmm. and start with where the children are, you know, you may be in fifth and you're still struggling with reading words. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there's nothing wrong with you. What is wrong is that you were just thrown into a system which had a different assumption. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and take the time out to do this. And, you know, it's, it's actually common sense. It's exactly what you do at home. Because you care for your child and you don't want your child to be, you know, disadvantaged. So you say, I'm going to help him more. Right. Uh, uh, and that's exactly what UP is doing that, you know, the whole thing is called teaching at the right level, which is that the children, there's nothing wrong with the children. What is the problem is that I was probably teaching them at some other level. So can I come down, figure out where the children are, help them so that they can reach at least this foundational level quickly. Uh, and I think that this is a big piece of this equity mindset now finally coming in. It's also an investment because unless I put in this basic investment, this thing is not going to go anywhere. Right? I mean, I think just to follow that up, I mean, it leads me to ask you about the question of English and uh, the language itself, because, of course, up until quite recently, it was the great hierarchy between, you know, private and, and non-private. But now we're seeing state governments making that actually uh, part of the educational curriculum and policy. So how do you see, you know, talking about the basic skills to be given, how do you now place uh, the work of English as a language in, as it were, disadvantaged areas? Is it actually a tool of emancipation or is it something you think that governments ought to provide? I read an interesting story in the Indian Express yesterday on on Punjab where, you know, the IELTS teachers were being brought in to actually give confidence to people to, to be able to speak English because that's something they want. Uh, so I was wondering what you see with this because this is also relatively a new phenomenon, uh, the, the, the question of, as it were, the, the democratization of English. So I would say, number one, hugely aspirational because parents didn't have it, so they want it. Mm -hmm. And it's very natural for parents to want things that, the, that you didn't have. And it, I think, adds to this nebulous betterment that's going to happen later. Second is, is it English or is it a passport or is it confidence? That's right. Right. Mm. Now, is it actually a form of upward mobility is also, I think, related. I, I, so I think that these are all correlates. We, it's very yeah. difficult to say. You, because you see an English-speaking person doing well, mm. you think it's the English mm. rather than whatever else this person has. Mm. So our very practical approach is to say that I think children need confidence. They need confidence to feel that they can actually do a lot of progress on their own. And if some amount of English vocabulary or being able to say some rhymes orally helps that, so be it. There is enough literature and research in the world which says if you have command over your first language, second language comes very easily. 
And therefore, we see that. For example, when we teach English to, say, fourth standard children in Himachal, mm -hmm. they pick it up very quickly because their Hindi is actually very good. And it's not just Hindi. It's the whole mindware that goes with expression and communication and comprehension mm -hmm. that is in place in relation to Hindi. So now replacing that with some English is not that difficult. When I go to do the same in UP at this time with the fourth standard children, it's much slower because that whole mind where is coming into place with Hindi. Yeah. So I would say we should, uh, to me, English is a, you should be a fun thing that you can play with yeah. right now. Just like you play with many things, use English playfully yeah. <laughs> so that there is no fear. You know, everybody plays cricket. Nobody's had coaching in cricket. Nobody worries that I'm playing cricket right or wrong. So go ahead and do that with English. When time comes to go to the test match, you know, you will be good. And then, then when the time comes, you will learn the English in the right way or whatever is the appropriate way in your context. I think that across all the things that I've, I've been saying is that we have at one level a very narrow academic scholarly, leading to college type of formal education system. That's right. Very unimaginative, if one may as well add. Yeah, and it's maybe very... exclusionary. This is yes. where the top of the class goes. Mm. But in the wake of the top of the class, a lot of people are getting left behind because they are not heading there. Mm. So how do you take this, the, the you know, there will always be a 10-15% who are going to go to, you know, whatever, you know, IIT or something. Mm. But just to make them go to IIT, 80% should not never have, you know, calculus or algebra or have fun That's with correct. math. That's I think that, again, how do I balance this drive to excellence with a broader equity? How do I do these things? I think we will learn. Mm -hmm. Right now, we are breathlessly chasing our aspirations in the hope that there's only that one aspiration. Yeah, I mean, again, on the aspiration issue, then it's also very striking. Then why has India done so badly in comparison to even poorer nations on, on primary education? Hmm. So I would say that, uh, you know, it depends on how we compare that. So if you compare access, we have actually done, you know, we have a school in almost every habitation in the country. If you look at how long children are staying, we have even girls staying for a long time now. Girls staying in school has huge implications for many things. You know, learning and literacy is only one of them. There are many other things. If you stay in school, you stay out of many other things, right? Uh, I think that in terms of even the basic learning levels that we talk about, after Asar was done, and Asar is, uses a very simple tool. Can you read letters? Can you read words? Can you read sentences? Kind of thing. A lot of African countries have taken on this and find that they too had an unease that things were not okay, but didn't have a sense of what it is. So, for example, India and Kenya are not very different in this basic learning level. Francophone countries in Africa are a lot worse because they are hampered by French. Right. Whereas East Africa or South Asia has been able to move into at least regional languages quite quickly. So I would say that there are there are people like uh, I mean, like Vietnam. Mm. I think Vietnam was very strategic. And, you know, when they began their redevelopment, they focused on primary education. But they, that has happened more recently, not when Nehru was around. That's right. <laughs> so this question on I come back to this question on excellence in primary education. And if we were to define primary education, like, say, the RTE Act does from 6 to 14, 
where do you see towards the higher end of this primary education the role of skills because it seems to me that one of the reasons why we have this very unidimensional approach towards what excellence is is because the top 10% end up in iit so that must be the epitome of excellence and that is what everybody must aspire to but of course given the fact that india has a jobs crisis irrespective of what the numbers say the fact of the matter is that we need to think about expanding the remit of what children are doing in school to vocational training to skills to a l- large number of things isn't it? it but but not the straight and narrow of going into iit so how do you see that uh, coming in if at all it is I mean, what are the kind of innovations required uh, so i think that? that see to me up to class 5 you should be comfortable and get your sort of foundations in place sure. and the foundations include being able to express yourself put your hand up and say i didn't understand that teacher can you say it again and that's not what my mom said i think this mm. is all part of foundational skills right mm. i think as you enter into sort of middle school i think we need to really rethink what we are doing because that is really the place where you can broaden rather than narrow further we look at in our own work we look at it in three broad ways education le- preparation for further learning which may be this narrow 10% 15% that goes further preparation for life which could be a whole bunch of things including what to me it seems very critical in india today is learning to do things together with people who are not like you whether it's boy girl whether it is some other kind of difference whether it is somebody who is very good writer but i'm not yeah. how do we learn to do things as a group how do i learn to apply whatever i'm doing here to the world at large we do some projects with groups of children which say go find a problem in your village and solve it you know at age 10 or 12 and it is fascinating to me how seriously t- children take on this responsibility right but we don't do this as part of our normal curriculum because our normal curriculum is individual excellence in a exam oriented mode right where there is a right and wrong which is laid out in some book i think that this big jobs crisis out there that is causing so much you know instant angst the 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 impact of that should be that we rethink all of these things because at the again the class that i was in today which has just learned to read and write we did a little game which was make let make words with the letters that you have these were class children in class 4 and until a few months ago were not even able to read little words they made lists of words and then i said can you put choose three of your favorite words and put them into a sentence and there was a two little girls whose who, whose letters were na and the sentence they showed me the spellings were wrong was navratri ke din nani ne nal se pani nikala wow <laughs> <laughs> but they got some to- poets in the making they did it together and mm. it's not just so it's not just that they can read they can now read they can weave they Alliterate. can sing they can mm. yeah. and the smiles were fantastic now in their exam this doesn't come out mm. and why can't you work as a group why can't you do things together so i think that we really need to rethink this what is preparation for more learning like academic learning type what is preparation for life and maybe by the time you're 15 or 16 what is preparation for work which may partly be vocational skills but partly could be how do you search how do you navigate how do you find information about some other thing i mean these are all and these are not done in school and in many families families don't know how to do them I mean schools are also important to democracy I mean you know yeah. th- they're also like for instance at the moment schools are have been converted into voting booths and yeah. right so I, we were just wondering a little bit about 
why is it that it's only with the very recent uh, Delhi government when you saw actually government schools for the first time outperforming private schools on, in examination that actually this education issue has become a political issue? Why do you think it has taken almost seven decades for, I mean, of course, there's been right to education, which then became an entitlement, a constitutional uh, right. Uh, it's only now that it's acquiring a political significance. Do you want to say something about So I, I would say that this is, you know, setting up schools has been a political thing for a long time, right? If you look at every politician and you ask, they usually have a school or a college. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that could be because it's a lucrative business, whatever. So I think that setting up schools, people know how to do. It was in demand for a long time. And if I promise it, then I know the way to give it to you, right? If I say free education till 8th or 10th or 12th, that is also an input-driven thing. And so as a government, I can declare it because I know how to do it. On the learning issue, we are all struggling with how do you guarantee that learning? I'm not going to promise it in some thing because, I mean, I think the AAP government in Delhi is very uh, brave, but it's also Delhi is, you know, Delhi has, yeah. and Delhi has very, I mean, they, you don't need to set up schools anymore in Delhi because the infrastructure in Delhi is really very good. So you can take the challenge of saying that I'm going to now focus on these issues of learning and equity because of uh, the fact that some basic things are in place already and because they're philosophically also they are equity oriented. But infrastructure poses a very big question of land and this is the other problem with schools being setting up set teacher training institutes and so on because you would require land and you know how that itself has become a very difficult issue in India today. So there's also too much obsession with infrastructure rather than quality of education. So how do you see you so, know, going uh, forward? I mean, you know, if I go back to my own home state, mm -hmm. when Nitish Kumar came in in his first term, mm -hmm. I would say that he made many bets. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wish we could remind him of the bets he made because they are now coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. I think he bet on women in a very big way. That's right. Correct. And in betting in, on women and their potential in a big way, a big piece of it was in the schools. So because of the fact that they were very behind yeah. in infrastructure, in provision, in opportunity, I mean, there was a huge push to get everybody into school yeah. and to keep kids in school. So this whole thing about giving girls cycles yeah. was, I think, as much about keeping them in school as as letting girls roam free. That's right. Which in yeah. a, I mean, I look at that whole cycle thing as a masterstroke yes. in in invisible. Yes. See, many of these learning things happen behind doors, mm. in the classroom. It's not visible for the world at large. Mm. When you build a school, it's visible for everyone. You build a bridge, it's visible for everyone. You make things free, it's visible. I think the cycle was an incredibly good thing to do in a place where girls were really... You know, for gender justice, for for yes. opening well, up the, the horizon. The girls were invisible. Yeah, completely. open yes. up the horizon, and I think that uh, there is not a person in the world who doesn't feel happy in the morning when you see whole streams of girls on cycles. <laughs> I've even heard. I mean, this could be just a story that Nitish Kumar was having um, a video conference with children from four or five districts, and he spoke to three districts and each of these only the girls spoke and apparently he turned around to someone and said let's start giving boys cycles as well <laughs> <laughs> they are getting left behind <laughs> yeah so I think I, and I think it's we must remember that we are having this conversation in the backdrop of the world's 
crusade against climate change mm. being led by Greta Thunberg and a bunch of school, school children. children. So, yeah. Because actually that seems to be and, what education is about. And it's my it. colleague in, uh, David Runciman has actually proposed that voting age should be dropped because <laughs> they are the true stakeholders <laughs> of the future. And uh, and I think yeah. that that's, that's essentially what primary education is about. As in it's about creating the real stakeholders of the future. And I think Pratham, as in it was a delight to know what Pratham is doing and also your your general overview of the sector in itself and for me I'm a fan of the work that's done so thank you very much for thank being you. here today thank and you sharing your views with us thanks thank very you. much thank and you. hopefully you'll join us for future episodes of Standpoint so thanks very much Bye. thank you